This is Bragg, the son of Balan, and you're listening to Light the Beacons, a Lotro podcast. Welcome to the world of Middle-earth. are lit. Lotro calls for aid. And Brog shall answer. Amandine, here in the foothills and the white mountains of Arid Nimre's tomfoolery is kindled. Welcome back to Light the Beacons, a weekly, uh, a bi-weekly, uh, a monthly, semi, a semi-annual, look, I do it when I can, Lotro podcast that also dabbles in books, movies, gaming, and the beloved lore of he whom shall not be named. This is episode number 76, nothing special here, and uh, maybe the spirit of 76, I can do that, and I'm your host, Bragg of the Lonely Mountain, the Sultan of Shields, White, the Earl of Agro, Keeper of Cool Company and Dwarf of Ill Repute, broadcasting live from temporary Light the Beacons, Middle Earth White Headquarters, far from Fethelian, uh, at the top of Mount Doom. Okay, maybe not at the top of Mount Doom, I'd like to be at the top of Mountain Doom, but I'm about as close as you can get to it in-game, actually. There's a couple ways up the slopes on this side or on that side. Um, but why can't we go to Samothnar? You know, they've got that uh, instance that you can do out of Udun, um, the Burning Mountain, where you can go up into kind of like, you know, the place where the Nazgul are reconstituted whenever they are dispelled from Middle-earth. And um, that... Uh, that that area also plays into uh, the epic storyline at the end of the Black Book of Mordor, where you see all the Gurgil congregate, and Dugabeth meets his, uh, well, one of his fates. And uh, so it is supposed to be reachable in-game, but you can't get there. It look, you know, There's a road on the map that looks like it goes there, and then you're like, oh, that's not a road, that's the bridge that's broken off from Barad-dûr. So you can't get up there. You can't get to Samoth. You can't get to that place, which is right next to Samoth Nar. You know, I want to stand where Frodo stood and look directly into the cracks of doom. I know it might be a little hot, but it would cool off eventually, right? Plus, I want to find Frodo's finger bone. Now, that's I don't know. It's just me. Maybe I know it's a little weird, but that would be a pocket item, right? Um, you know, Harry Potter and the finger of Frodo. Well, well, standing here anyway, um, basically on the northern slopes of Ordrun, I'm looking down at the Valley of Udun. I can see the fiery cracks of lava reaching out from Mount Doom across the territory. Um, there's lava pouring down the hillsides. It's black, it's brown, it's gray. You can see a tower standing up on the sides of Mount Doom intermittently around there. And there's that one path you can get up to when you do the orc camp that's a little higher than where I'm standing right now. Uh, but that dead ends in another broken bridge, so you can't go further east towards uh, Samoth Nar or towards um, Amon Thor, which is the location of the um, of the Burning Mountain instance. It's so tantalizing. It looks like you should be able to get up there. I'm hoping in a future release 
they fix one of the bridges so that you can cross over and see that part of the mountain. I want to be all over Mountain Doom, okay? I'm sorry. Uh, but I am standing here right now because it's about the closest I can get to having a vantage point down into the Abyss of Mordath. I mean, without actually going in there. I mean, who would want to do that? Are you nuts? Um, but I have at least partially penetrated the Abyss of late. And we'll share a bit more on that a little later. Maybe in my private adults-only channel. Watch Brad penetrate the abyss. But right now, uh, we better move on to our next beacon of Ilanok. Here we are at Ilanok with a review of our agenda for this week. As usual, we got to deal with a lot of C-R-A-P corrections, retractions, and apologies from last week. Uh, last time out, uh, we offended high elves and we offended low elves, and I'll be in Scotland before ye. Uh, no, seriously, my uh, 420, 420th podcast, wink, wink, must have given everyone a severe case of the munchies. So to all those that like a good pipe now and then, and to everyone else that was offended, we offer us solemn and very heartfelt chillax, dude. I, I mean, sorry. Uh, viewer comments, agree to disagree. Let's check the leaderboard. The last review of the podcast was left by F. Duddy, a.k.a. Fielder, on October 9th of 2017, and he currently has our high score. As always, if you want to join this illustrious vacuum of your viewers, then please, by all means, continue to do absolutely nothing. Uh, viewer feedback, agree to disagree. I heard from longtime listener Bragg and Thorn. Hey, Bragg, awesome song. I guess he's talking about the You Done song. Can't stand country most of the time, but bravo. Time for me to log in. I have not been on for a bit. Did you see Star Wars? Yes, I did. I think I think I talked to some reactions to Star Wars uh, in the last podcast. Um, I have not seen it for a third time. <laughs> Two so far, so good. Uh, but, uh, hey, you never know. I feel bad for those who did not like it. I respect their opinions. They keep saying they did not give us the Star Wars movie we wanted. They gave us the movie we needed. Not sure if many will agree. Wishing you and all a happy new year. Happy new year to you, self, as well, Bragg and Thorn. Um, I agree. I think the turn on Luke's character took some people by surprise. And a lot of people who've been invested in seeing him, you know, raise a new Jedi order and bring forth a new legion of Jedi and lead them against the dark side were disappointed that he turned out to be a grumpy old curmudgeon. So scarred by the loss of, well, we're getting into spoiler territory. You know, of course, the movie's been out. You know, two months, so it's probably okay. But um, I understand why some people were taken aback by that turn of events. I enjoyed them myself. I thought it was a cool character arc. And, of course, Mr. Skywalker did a good job with it. Uh, he also says on the next podcast, congrats on 75 episodes. I've enjoyed them all. Your human insights are always welcome. I think people who play Lotro and SSG are lucky to have you. Aw, shucks. Um... Out of any talking heads you can pick these days, I would say you qualify to be truly fair and balanced. Not enough of that these days. I uh, would not change a thing, but who knows? When you're filling your cup or pipe or whatever, you may be inspired to do something new. Thinking about posting your episodes on YouTube? No, I'm not. I'm sure people would love to guest host with you. No, they wouldn't. But maybe you don't want the headache? No, I don't. Laugh out loud? Well, I do already have Grima in place, so he's kind of my second in command. Right, Grima? Yeah. Well said, Grandma. As always, uh, pithy to the core. Be good to yourself, Master Dwarf. Please keep lighting the beacons, and may the Force be with you. Uh, 
always. And to you, Braggenthorn, thank you very much for writing in. Uh, from Twitter, I, you know, I just want to give a shout out to the efforts of uh, hashtag Lotro Family, which is, I believe, uh, maintained by Fibro Jedi, uh, a name many of you might know. Uh, at the end of the year, he uh, he spent a you know good amount of time uh, away from the Twitter sphere, uh, which was uh, thankfully taking a break, and uh, understandably so. But um, I think he gave some stats at one point to how many tweets he'd done over the course of the year servicing Locho Family. I'm always happy to see Locho Family tweets out there. I think he does a fantastic job. It is time-consuming and a labor of love, hopefully. So hopefully he feels fulfilled doing it, but I did want to give him a shout-out. Um, do a search on Fibro Jedi and find his personal page to hear stories of Swotor, Lotro, and uh, struggling with fibromyalgia, which is a serious condition, uh, obviously, if you read some of the articles there, both heartbreaking and inspiring. In the community spotlight, uh, there was a guy that came out recently by Dottie, again, Dottie's Guides continues to be one of the go-to information sources for Lotro out there in the interwebs. Uh, Dottie's Guide to the Aria of the Valar. And there were uh, a couple interesting points out there I wanted to call out. Uh, for those of you who have tried Aria of the Valar, some of you may have received it when you bought the Mordor expansion. Um, I never would have bought one, but I did get one when I bought the Mordor expansion. Uh, Dottie notes the best part is the list of how to close... Um, Actually, I point out <laughs> that the best best part of the guide for me is the list of how to close out missing class trade points. So you get a number of miss, uh, class trade points through the area of the Valor. I think it's up to about 57 or so, but that still leaves you, you know, 30 odd points to collect um, that you don't receive automatically. So he's got a list of what those are and quests to go through in order to obtain them. And why is this necessary? Because it's a frigging mess, that's why. And until Lotro comes up with an in-game tracker that helps you figure out which class trade points you've earned and which are outstanding and how to find them, we need multi-page player guides to figure out one of the most important aspects of player development in the game. So does this rub me the wrong way? Yes. It's time for SSG to fix this. It would not be that difficult for them to do. I will say that I recently re received an uh, Aria of the Valar in-game, in addition to the one that I received for buying the Mortar expansion. <coughs> Someone on Landreville was uh, doing a hide-and-seek contest, and uh, they said, I'm in a region, and you may, um, if you have a good view of the ridges, then and you race to find me, then you, you know, and you're the first one there that you'll get a prize. Uh, knowing that the Ridge Racer title is in Iridian, um in the Penderigian area, and knowing the route to, to climb in order to get that title, having done it maybe several times, uh, Bragg was actually the first person there uh, to meet him at the top of the ridge, at the top of the Holland Ridge, and uh, the prize turned out to be an area of the Valar package, um, which I now own, and I think he... I'm pretty sure it's bound, so I can't give it away again. But uh, uh, pretty cool to have received that as a gift. I mean, I know I see some people trying to buy them in game for five thousand gold, for gosh sake. Uh, so I think it's or sell them for that much at least. They usually go for several thousand gold a piece. Now I don't know if I'm going to use one of them or maybe even two of them. But Daddy's article gave me a pause for thought on this. Um, 
And as a side note, it seems to be a lot of games on Landroll lately where people playing hide-and-seek are giving away like dozens of sturdy steel keys, uh, you know, in some cases one to 2,000 gold a pop for these contests. And they'll do these hide-and-seek contests in three or four different regions in a night and give away three, four, five thousand 5,000 gold <laughs> in an evening. I don't think I've had 5,000 gold across nine characters in my entire life. So now I have two Area of the Valors. One from the High Elf Purchase um, is where I got it now that I'm thinking about it. And I'm considering using one to see if any of the stuff you get is account-bound and usable on my other tunes. Um, you know, create a new character, Area of the Valor, even if I'm not going to use them at endgame, just to see what comes along and see if there's other stuff that I can use uh, on other tunes. I know I can reuse the gold at a minimum. I don't think it's a ton of gold, but it's a little bit, um, I believe, from what I can recall. Uh, I'm not sure what else might be reusable, so I might play with it since I have two. Uh, maybe stat tomes, probably not tradable, but would be cool if they were. Uh, armor, for those new to Mordor, I could use on one of my existing 105 alts that's uh, primed for Mordor. My hunter is getting in line shortly, so we will see. If I experiment with that, I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, forums in Stider, Insider. Um, Still, it was still quiet from the holidays for mostly January, although I did note there was a, a dev tracker note that came out about the raid progression thread. For those of you who don't know what that is, uh, whenever they come out with a new raid, such as the Abyss of Mordath, um, in the past they've had a thread where people from different worlds, uh, Landreville, Gladden, uh, Crick Hollow, whatever, could post pictures of them completing the raid on Tier 1 and or Tier 2 in order to be able to claim the title of, you know, server first for, for finishing those. And usually it's a race to the finish. Um, now, the Abyss of Morath, Mordath got finished on Tier 2 within hours of release because it was on Bolroar so long. Some of the uh, serious raiding kins had a lot of time to practice. But um, the raid progression thread was, put, uh, was closed over the holidays uh, because... Uh, people in SSG did not have the bandwidth being out for the holidays to heavily monitor it over the break. And if you don't monitor threads like that, you know, the trash pile and garbage and refuse pile up uh, and invective, of course. Um, so they need to be closely monitored. So they closed the thread temporarily over the holidays, which is when a lot of people were running the raid. And some people were bent out of shape about that, but I don't begrudge SSG employees taking a break, same as we do. So in this week's action-packed episode, we're going to, as never, talk a little bit about what we've been doing in-game these past few weeks. I'm going to give you some initial impressions of the mechanics of the Abyss of Mordath. Uh, instead of a sponsorship bit this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about the 12 Days of Yule Fest. And then, of course, as is customary in January, I'm going to go through my 2018 predictions. But if we want to have time for that, we better get moving along to our third beacon. The boom. She is on fire. Nardal. This week in gaming and or other Tokian news. What have I been playing lately? Um, let me see. I've been watching a slew of games that, uh, you know, some of the young dwarves in the uh, family picked up over the Christmas holiday, including a game called Fortnite, which appears to be the flavor of the week. Uh, kind of a multi-person, almost Hunger Games-esque first-person shooter. Uh, and I ducked into Shadow of Mordor. I actually made a little bit of progress and uh, moved on to a new section of the game, which I have to say reinvigorated my interest. I've been 
you know, bumming around Udun, trying to finish as many quests there as possible, banging my head against a few of them, even though my character is advanced, getting a few others ticked off as I, you know, grew my ability points and skill points a little bit. Uh, but I finally decided to move on with the main storyline and uh, found myself around the Sea of Nern, which was a completely different look on the landscape. Uh, green grasses and, and blue skies as opposed to the black and brown of uh, Udun. Um, so the story is evolving. We're meeting some new characters and uh, got through a few, a few important story points there, and it was interesting. So I think I'm getting back into the Shadow of Mordor, going to be picking that up and trying to make some serious progress moving forward. From a movie standpoint, I re-watched re Get Out and Atomic Blonde around the holidays, both great movies from this past year I recommend. I saw The Greatest Showman in theater, starring Hugh Jackman as uh, P.T. Barnum. And if you like musicals, I enjoyed it very much. thought it was well done. The music was great. A couple of the characters were mad, but for the most part, um, it was neat. So if you like musicals and like seeing the, the renaissance of musicals out in the movie theater, Greatest Showman is worth seeing. And uh, still lots of award movies to run down for the Oscar season, including The Post, Three Billboards, Coco, Lady Bird, and what's the other one I want to go out and see? Uh, probably um, The Darkest Hour. So those will be ticking off probably over the course of the next few weeks in January in preparation for the Oscars. In books, I've been starting to get into the Gates of Anubis finally. I was kind of idling on it, and I picked it up again and making some progress. Uh, but from a Lodro standpoint, what have we been doing? Bragg's Mortar D-Log is done, so he's not been playing nearly as much been doing the occasional Court of Saragost run to generate Scrolls of Empowerment and Amphalash Crystals and Ash for other tunes. Uh, did a battle in the Tower Skirm uh, where I jumped in and helped someone beat the boss. Um, in the middle of this podcast, I got called out by my kin to go run the Dungeon of Nairband, six man on 105 because the weekly Allegiance quest is to run both that and Court of Saragost on 105. So I'd actually done the boss fight in that instance uh, several times now, but that was the first time I'd run through the entire instance and uh, did it on my guard. Uh, tier 1, 105, you really don't have to worry about mechanics, but it was nice to see the rest of the space, get the rhythm of it, and see where the ads are spawning. Um, and actually, I got two Amphalash crystals, uh, Starlit crystals, out of that run. Uh, so was worthwhile both to see the content. Uh, maybe we'll move up to Tier 2, 105, and then Tier 1, 115, and see how that goes. I've heard that Tier 1, 115 run is still pretty killer, though. Uh, Bragg is also, you know, I made a decision. Um, as you know, I have class trait, class trait point tracker that I've made out of game. I've made various other trackers out of game over time. And I finally decided I needed a stat tomb tracker. Okay, so... Uh, I generated a bunch of stat tombs over, over the Yule Fest by getting daily presents from Merry Sound Downs. And, of course, I've picked some up on the AH over time and just general world drops and so forth. So I have, you know, ten characters all over the map, each with five different major stats and each with a different level of stat tome. And I probably had, mm, I'm going to guess about uh, 15 to 20 stat tomes sitting in my vault that none of my alts needed. Just waiting to see, like when I log in, I always check shared storage, see if any of the tombs are applicable to the character I'm on. If not, go back to what I'm doing. So, but they take up a lot of space. 
And, you know, it's somewhat infrequent that I find one that allows me to progress. Oh, I got eight. Now I have nine and ten sitting in the vault, and I'm at eleven, and I got to finally use them. It happens every now and again, but most of them sit for a long time. Um, and I finally decided to, you know, I go out and I look on the AH for the two my tome I need in order to get past it to get to the ones I have. And finally I decided it was, you know, taking up too much space, it was too slow, and a waste of time. So I put every tome I, tome I had that was not uh, count bound out on the AH. And I think I posted 15 or 16 of them. Um, you know, I did a little cursory glance at pricing, but just generally speaking, put them all out there somewhere between, you know, 135 to 250 gold, depending on the level they were at. Um, and uh, one day later, two of them had sold and I'd made 500 gold, <laughs> which is a lot of gold for me. I don't have that much. I think Bragg has maybe, I'm not going to share my finances. That's personal information. But 500 gold is a lot of gold for me. And uh, I'll see if some of the others go over the course of the next couple of days. Um, the ones that sold immediately were level 5. So that means those may be some of the more difficult ones to find. What I did find is that the level 10 and 11 stat tomes that are out on the AH, as opposed to like 100 or 150 or 200 gold, those are selling for like 10 or 15 or even you know 20 gold tops. So 10 and 11 level stat tomes appear to be the most common ones out there that everyone can find easily. And they don't go for much resale value. Uh, but, you know, if I sell a bunch of these tomes and I start to feel a little bit more rich, I can go in and fill in some of the ones that I'm actually missing on tunes. You know, I won't feel as guilty spending 200 or 250 or even 300 gold for a tome if I've made a bunch from selling the ones I didn't need. So that's the idea. And I'll let you know how that goes. If I sell more, if I'm able to buy some and flesh out some of my main characters, all the better. Um... So the tome tracker I made actually lists the current level of each passive stat I have across all 10 tunes, and also the ones I have, um, kind of like a little graph that shows where the, where the ones I have. And I tried to do some matching up to see, you know, how close I was to using some of the ones I had. And that's when I determined, nope, not close, might as well get rid of some of these. So that's what Bragg's been doing. My mini has been, did instrument upgrades finally for the Doomfold that came out with the last patch release. Uh, each of those required a couple of, um, couple of refined uh, logs or whatever, Doomfold logs, quality Doomfold logs from my, wind, my woodworker. But I got uh, both a DPS weapon and a healing weapon made that uh, were uh, fairly significant upgrades. And my mini's been doing gear upgrades, mostly to level 330 stuff, but uh, with a couple 326s and or level 332s, or even a purple 337 level gear mixed in, depending on how the ash piles up. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you can do d gear upgrades when you first get to Mordor. You can trade in Allegiance Tomes for some gear. You can do the Ashes of Gargaroth Barter, of course. Um, you can get some out of loot box drops. You can get some out of instance drops if you're running Court of Saragost and Dungeon and Airband. You can craft some using the ingredients dropped from the Tier 2 Challenge instances, even if they're level 105. And there's one more I'm missing. Um, I'm forgetting what the last one is. But, uh, but there's four or five, six different areas to get gear. Uh, the best gear right now is the that's out there is the level 337 and 345 gear uh, that you can craft using 
uh, drop from Tier 2 Challenge, Abyss of Mordath. Uh, I think it's, what's it called? Something of Mordath. A fragment of Mordath or something like that uh, to use for crafting recipes. And, uh, of course, the other upgrade is trying to get as many empowered Abyssal Essences into my gear as possible. They are a significant bump up as well. So I've been doing Cordyceragos runs with my mini to get my LIs polished and on my mini they're nearly complete. I have all the scrolls of empowerment that I need for her and just need a couple on flash crystals to round out her weapon and her LIs will be fully polished. Uh, I did run a level 115 Court of Saragost run um, with my mini. I actually two-manned it with a champion, so can't be too bad. I think it was a tier 1, but we did a 115 Court of Saragost with a champion and a mini, and it worked out just fine. Uh, we didn't get a rune drop, though. The reason to do the 115 uh, Court of Saragost run is to try to get a rune drop, which drops a rune for your allies that... Uh, is a bump up from the runes that are available right now um, in terms of stats. Uh, I did a run at healing the Abyss of Mordath on Tier 1. I'll tell a little bit more about that later. It went okay. And I've been doing a bunch of cooking. She's my cook to support uh, some of the raiding because the pug that we did, we died a lot, we wiped a lot, and we used a lot of food. <laughs> Uh, so my mini feels obviously uh, a lot better with all the upgrades she's had, but she can still struggle on the landscape if she gets a group of four or more mobs that are linked. Um, so that's talking about the encampments, encampments that you can do via allegiance whenever you have to plant one of the flags. Usually all the mobs around the flag are linked to the flag. And even if you do a distract, if you come within range of the flag, it'll activate all of them at once. And there are a couple groups on the landscape I found that even distracted and not coming near the flag, if you hit one of them, the rest will all come. So in some cases, those are four, five, six, seven mobs. And uh, in those cases, when that happens, uh, my mini, I need to wait for a partner. I need to wait for another two to run up because I just can't take five right now. Uh, four is probably a taller order. Three, I can just manage if I hit all my cooldowns and so forth. Um, but four or five, too many for my mini on the landscape, uh, you know, if they're at level. So um, so that's where she's at right now. My captain is the fashionable. It's been also doing gear upgrades, mostly 330s with a couple 326s and 337s. Um, what's interesting is the, the return of the importance of crafting with all these new recipes that came out around the Abyss of Mordath. Uh, so my Cappy's my jeweler, has been trying to, craft every day that I remember to log in on him a shiny black adamant because um, you need multiple ones for each empowered abyssal essence uh, you know or you need a doom vault quality wood or a doom vault quality ingot etc depending on your crafting profession um, and you can only do one of those a day so good to remember whatever tune you're on if you have a doom vault crafter to do your uh, your shiny your shiny crit one that you can only do once a day, every day, um, so that you have them when you need them to craft essences or other stuff. And I did want to note, you can do two a day. If you have a, for example, if you have, um, I forget what the profession is, yeoman or whatever, uh, that does foresting and woodworking, or you have a prospector that's a metalsmith and a prospector, you can do you can do one for each of those professions, so you can do two at the, per day, basically. You know, one ingot and one, 
or two, actually for prospector and metalsmith, you can do two ingots, or forester and woodworker, you can do a, you know, a log and something else, or you know, or a um, uh, a hide, or whatever the case may be. So you can do two per person per crafter. Just a little tip. Um, so I needed, by the way, I needed like five quality doomfold logs for per instrument for the instruments I made for my mini, and two two each per essence empowered abyssal essence. Um, my lore master is level 115, has completed Baradur, uh, he followed, he followed the black book into Lingris, and I skipped most of the side quests in Lingris, trying to see what I could skip, um, and not give up on the class trade point at the end of the day, um, you know, I tried to do only side quests that, you know, synergies with, uh, the black book in terms of landscape, for example, why go into Nairban to look for a bleached goal for the Black Book without completing other regional quests in there at the same time? Um, I uh, went into Talith Uri, one of the tougher pieces of Mordor, and started doing quests in Fushumbal, and did not have enough uh, did not have enough quest drops to date with uh, a Light of Arendil gear to complete that. So. I went back and actually spent Ash uh, to do a full outfit of uh, Ash gear for my lore master uh, of the tier that only takes 70 Ash per piece. And it was a big improvement. <laughs> um, I think I was originally in Talith Uri with uh, the, you know, the darkness debuff that uh, had 40, plus 40% 40 incoming damage <laughs> and like, you know, cut my damage in half or whatever, and I wasn't getting anywhere. So I went back and bought the uh, the gear, which is 70 ash for peace, and uh, it was an expensive shortcut, but not prohibitive, and I was much more successful after that in Telleth Uri. Again, as the lore master, a blue line appears to be your friend for moving through the content um, that is more difficult uh, so that your little pet friend can tank for you. Uh, so I completed Telf. Uri, Agarneth, the Black Book of Mordor, and uh, went back to do Lingris. There's um, there's a quest in the Black Book of Mordor where it says, go kill an orc that's in Lingris, you know, that's delivering a message to the tower. And I went back to Kirith Ungol to find the orc, and every all the orcs there were green because I hadn't advanced the quest line enough to turn them red. Uh, I needed a red orc to find the orders for the Gurzuil meeting, and um, I found out, I eventually got it, I think, through a drop in, off an orc in Kalamurg. So, but I thought I needed to complete Skirithungal, so I went ahead and reran that. Um, you need to complete the Eyes in the Darkness quest with Legolas for the Allegiance, to open up the Allegiance Dailies opener anyway. And by the time I did that, there were only like four more final quests in Kirithungal to finish. Uh, and run the instance where Legolas and you pursue Shelob through the Underdoor or the Undertake or the Underwear or whatever it's called, something like that. So um, I figured I might as well finish them at that point. And, uh, you know, the way it's set up, you don't need all your content done to get your class trait point for the Black Book of Mordor, but you do if you want to unlock all your dailies. <laughs> so you end up kind of having to go back and do them all anyway. It didn't save much time. Um at one point, I, I, you know, as I was moving my lore master through the content, I was most interested in unlocking the plateau of Argonath so I could open the Court of Saragost instance and get him into the rotation running the level 105 Court of Saragost. Um, then after I did that, I actually figured out that um, you can unlock the Court of Saragost apparently 
just by running up to the watching stone at the base of the Court of Saragost, I think that might be a change. So when it first came out, I'd unlock the plateau with the characters I had, and I had to find the door of the instance on the upper level of Saragost to open it. But I think if you haven't opened up the top level, all you have to do is run up to the Watcher Stone at the base that you use to transport. And even if you don't have that open yet, it'll do it for you. Uh, so a little tip for those who are looking to open the Court of Saragost, but do not yet have the Argonath Upper Plateau opened. Uh, my Berg is still 107 and chipping away, maybe a quest or two a week, but that's it. My Hunter has been crafting logs and instruments, level 106, no movement. Bjorning, I don't know, did something with the Bjorning. I think I did some gear upgrades from him, maybe some Matham stuff, getting him ready for Mordor. Uh, he's still in the waste someplace. My champ, who's level 67, completed Danenglor, uh, is in Mirkwood. And the epic sent me to the Dower Stocks, and then I completed uh, the Ostgalad Master Ascender title, which I always like to get in Mirkwood, cause just because it's fun. Uh, and I explored Tor Morbuth and the Scuttle Dells, and I have one the next instance to do there where you escort the Fellowship Party through Mirkwood, and some ills befall some of your party to the spiders therein, before I believe I'll be sent to Thanglehad and be back on the skirmish track to open up all the Mirkwood skirmishes. So made a little bit of progress on him this past week. My RK, who's 56, did a full Grand Stair run, which is always good for deeds. And that is the level of the Grand Stair in Moria anyway, although you usually get some overleveled people in those runs, and they go pretty quickly. Uh, but I healed the run on my RK, just concentrating the one or two that were close to on level, uh, just to get some practice in, because I don't do that much with him. And uh, just in case you forget, uh, since the um, the Grand Stair is a level 56 instance. If you haven't discovered it yet and you haven't reached the level that opens it automatically, someone of the correct level has to open the instance for you and then invite you into the party. So what happens was when, when I was in the fellowship and they tried to open the instance, they couldn't because I didn't have it opened yet or I wasn't the right level. So they dropped me, then opened the instance, then re-invited me, and then I was able to go in. So there's a little clue for some of you folks if, uh, if someone tells you that you're too low a level or you haven't discovered something, in some cases they can drop you, open the instance, and then invite you back so that you can join something that's higher than your current level. My warden turned level 40 through the Ufest and got to do his next class quest, which was holding the line against invaders from the Vale of Andrath, south of Bree. That was fun. That was the first time I'd done that because uh, warden is my lowest level character at level 40. And my hel High Elf Warden reached the lofty level of 15. She, uh, she leveled from level 9 to 15 through the Yule Fest, just doing daily, uh, daily quests for the festival. Um, now she's sitting, but uh, at level 15, I got my speed running skill for the Warden, which is a very handy one. And in other Tokian news, I did want to mention in the You Learn Something New Every Day department, just when you thought you knew all the little Easter eggs in Lotro, I discovered one that maybe I knew a long time ago, but if I did, I forgot about it. I was doing the Elf Allegiance quest for my lore master, uh, running around Rivendell, packing up supplies for Elrond, and I came across um, a NPC in the marketplace by the name of Nimorn, N-I-M-O-R-N. And as I walked up to him, he said to me, Brenio Meado, in Elvish. And I'm like... 
I kind of want to know what that means. So I went over and I did a search for it in the Tolkien Gateway, and I came across a rough translation uh, meaning endure and grow skillful. And as I sat there and thought about it, Nimorn, endure and grow skillful, I realized and later validated on the Lotro forums uh, that this is an in-game homage to Leonard Nimoy, who plays Spock, and that uh, the elvish Brinio Meado could loosely be translated as um, live long and prosper. Endure and grow skillful means live long and prosper. And uh, the character even carries a harp, a harp as Spock plays in the original series episode Charlie X. So if you've not seen Nimorn in-game uh, in the Elvish marketplace of Rivendell, uh, go by and tell him Brinio Meado. Um, there was a dev, I think it was Made of Lines, that actually you know, didn't fully admit that, that it was an homage, but basically all, the, all but conceded that it was and that it, he was... The, one of the guys responsible. So love to see little uh, tidbits like that in the game. Hopefully that's something some of you did not know about. That's enough with what I've been doing in game this past couple weeks. Let's move on to our fourth beacon of Eralas. Welcome back to Eralas. I want to talk a little bit in our beacon, our fourth beacon, about the Abyss of Mordath. And uh, my experience running it on Tier 1 over the last, uh, about two weeks ago. Um, first of all, I did want to mention that on Tier 1, you can get by with about 150 Light of Arendil and be invited to most groups to participate. Uh, 200 Light of Arendil is the minimum for Tier 2, and I actually recommend a bit more. If you can get 200 before you run even Tier 1 instances, I highly recommend it. But below 150, you're not going to be able to function. And in Tier 2, you absolutely need 200 or above. That's generally what I hear people asking for. So Radiance 2.0, here you go. Um, in general, uh, my characters that are raid-ready are in between 210 and 245, Light of Arendil at this point. So I had no issues with the evil darkness. Um, but this does, you know, the fact that the raid requires this does give some people motivation. There's something to strive for and grow in game, which is kind of the whole idea behind the design. So the Abyss of Mordath, as you know, is set in the bones of Baradur. And I agree, it's an epic space, you know, kind of dripping with portent and lore to send us into. Uh, unlocking the instance, if you don't do it during the natural course of landscape penetration of Baradur when you're doing Dor Ormarth, or if you've already if you already completed Dor Ormarth before the raid came out, um, there is a way to open up the instance without having to go all the way to Baradur and all the way down to the bottom, running through all the mobs that are in there. If you go to the Runes of Dingarth and enter the Reflecting Pool instance there. Um, you can rerun the quest, assuming that you've done it already, into the Abyss, which is where you accompany Gimli down into the Abyss uh, via rope. And uh, I think you fight you know, basically some trolls and then uh, maybe some, some Kargul on the other side. Go into that instance. Do not click on Gimli's ring. Just run up the stairs, across the passageway, down the other set of stairs, straight to the entrance to the Abyss of Mordath, and it will unlock for you within that instance. Then you can just leave without ever having to activate or do it. So it literally takes like 30 seconds, and um, you know that gives you a couple of Cygnus of Thrandrum and some marks as well, I believe. 
Um, so that'll save you some time if you're trying to get into the raid with a character that has not opened it up yet and done the discovery. So the space itself in the in the um, in the raid is is pretty epic. Uh, there's you know there's great graphics in there. It's it's you know big crisscrossy bridges penetrating into the deep. There's uh, huge vaulting spaces with all kinds of ornate decoration. There's um, you know, long falls down to lava pits where there's like lava spewing up into the air, splashing around, kind of drips with history and evil. So it's a cool setting. They did a good job. The path itself, beyond the first boss especially, is a little dark and not necessarily intuitive about, in a few spots, about where you should go. You know, climbing over a pile of debris, maybe you don't see where the next doorway is, etc. So helps to have a, an experienced raid lead, as always. Uh, and if you don't know the route, you'll learn it well soon enough running back from wipes. <laughs> um, so here's one tip I have. Um, the first time I tried to do the raid in a pug that failed miserably. Well, we didn't fail. We were just having fun. No one knew the fights. We were just learning it. One thing you do learn is that if you're doing a trash pull, which can be very tough, and a lot of pugs can wipe on trash pulls, uh, and you get killed, do not retreat. Repeat. Do not retreat after you get killed in a trash fight. Um, what happens is, uh, if a couple people retreat, they'll appear at the top of the instance, and in some cases, that'll attract the active mobs who will try to run to the entrance to get you. And when they do, um, in some cases, they're stupid enough to path off of bridges and down into crevices where they get stuck and basically can't reset. So uh, the instance will get bugged. It'll get bugged out. So what happens is if you die, don't retreat until everybody's dead. All the, the mobs reset themselves, and then you can safely retreat, um, if that makes any sense. Uh, one other comment. There's a pages deed in each of the new instances in Mordor, and that's uh, the same for the Abbess of Mordath. And um, some of the pages are along the main way that you would take anyway to kill bosses. So you just find them after you clear out a, you know, uh, a passage or get past a boss. But some of them are off to the side um, and are behind trash mobs that you wouldn't have to fight to otherwise progress in the raid. You know, it's a side passage that you could normally skip. But if one person needs the page, then if you have an indulgent raid leader, you have to clear out all those trash mobs and pick up that page. And in some cases, you know, we're wiping on trash mobs and doing it multiple times just for one guy to get a page. And then someone else joins and they're like, oh, I don't have the page. Okay, we'll do it again, you know, etc. So I think it's bad design that some of the pages are behind non-essential mobs that you wouldn't have to fight otherwise. Uh, because if most of the people are done with it and some aren't, eh, it's annoying to have to go back and get it. Uh, there is a mechanic in the raid called banner locks, which means as you get past certain stages of the raid, you can skip ahead by clicking on a banner at the entrance and not have to do that trash again. So I know a lot of raids just look to clear trash with pug groups um, you know, on a Thursday or Friday to free up the trash to the first boss to set up their weekend raid groups and their kin so they can skip that part and go straight to the first boss or straight to the second boss or wherever the case may be. But it does always help not to have to run all that way again and again. So that is quite welcome. Um, so in my first pug experience, as I mentioned, in some trash mobs, there might be eight, nine, ten mobs in a group. 
and it was all we could do to kill one of them before the whole group wiped. So it's pretty painful. You run back, you kill one mob, then there's nine. Go back again, hope to kill one mob before that you wipe again, come back again. Eventually the group gets small enough that you can beat the rest of them. So that was, you know, learning, learning, learning. Which mobs to attack first, who buffs who, who can be controlled, who can't, who has random aggro, all that kind of fun stuff. And if you have a good raid leader, unfortunately, he's got to know a lot of that to save you some time. Um, so uh, eventually I got past pugs, got to an organized group where in tier one, I was brought on as a mini to heal. And I learned the first boss fight. And in this particular boss fight, followed a very familiar pattern with raiding. We failed, we failed, we failed. Eventually some people quit. We got one or two people replaced and the new people came in, knew the raid a little better. And had some suggestions on our strategy. And then we did a little better. We did a little better. And eventually we won and beat him. Um, so that is always so satisfying when you eventually get a boss down that you've banged your head against the wall against like seven or eight times. Uh, so the first boss room is kind of a an altar surrounded by some puddly green water and then a bunch of you know catwalks that you can run around in a big square around it basically. And it's a little bit confusing, but basically it's a big square with an altar in the middle, and you should think of it that way and forget about all the other stuff. There are some things on the edges that you can, you know, if you're behind, you're not line of sight, you can't DPS, you can't heal, so you kind of have to watch out for some of those objects around the edges that could get in your way. Um, so the main mechanics is basically there are two bosses that must be separated during the fight. We know this drill already, right? So you're going to need two tanks. And uh, over the course of the fight, as they reach certain thresholds, they'll summon three sub-bosses. I think one is like kind of a rhino, deep claw creature. Next is a spider, and the last is a huorn or tree. Now, in Tier 1, these guys don't do significant damage. Um, so you can kind of ignore them as far as DPS priority. But they do obscure your vision and make things kind of more chaotic and hectic because they're big. <laughs> and if they move in the middle, you can't, can't, can't really see what you're doing. And you kind of let it... Lean back on your raid instincts, which is, you know, watch your bars, you know, watch your mini map, um, and follow your DPS, uh, follow your DPS lead, right? And you don't necessarily have to see to be effective. It can help in some cases, though. So, um, you know, ignore those guys on tier one at least. Eventually, uh, as you get past another deep uh, morale tier, spirits start appearing around the room, and you also want to ignore them because killing them just respawns them basically so you're wasting your time um, you just have to endure their attacks uh, which are not that great except for one part uh, every once in a while I would say every two or three minutes the spirits do an induction where they all start having red circles around their feet at the same time and you need to pay attention to that really in tier one it's the most important and maybe almost the only thing you need to pay attention to that can wipe your group because if they're inducting next to you, they're doing kind of a radius AoE damage to everyone around them, and it is deadly. So when you see spirits inducting, you need to move away. You move away from there, find a clear area, and as soon as they stop, you move back to your original positions. Basically switch back and forth between two positions, safety and your original position where you can DPS or, or tank or heal or whatever you're doing. Um, so... That's the most important thing in the whole raid. When the spirits induct, you must move or you will die. 
on top of that, there's one last mechanic. Uh, randomly, the boss will port someone to the sacrificial altar, and if they don't move off it quickly enough, they'll be killed. So, But it's not that fast. You got at least a couple seconds. It's a little disorienting when you appear on top of the altar. You just like port over there. Uh, but you can kind of quickly find your party and get back into position, and it's it's not that bad. Uh, if it's the healer or the tank, it can cause a little bit of chaos, so that makes things interesting. So we got the boss down, and loot, meh. I think I got a 337 purple piece I could use. Uh, besides that, wasn't that great. For anything really good, you probably want tier 2. Um, we did the trash to the second boss. Uh, some of those had limb frame reflex for DPS, as best as I can recall, uh, but they weren't too bad. We got through those okay. Our raid leader said the second boss was going to be way easier, but um, we failed on him a couple times, and eventually I had to quit because it was getting late. So that's as far as I've gotten. But basically, the second boss is a big with crushing dark line. So a little bit of a DPS race. You got to finish the boss as he march as the the darkness line moves across the bridge before it reaches you, and he summons adds and. Uh, we failed twice on him, and then we ran out of time. But I, I remember him hitting pretty hard. <laughs> I was healing the tank, and I could not keep up. So definitely needed some more buffing for the healer in that particular instance. And apparently I've read online that third boss is some kind of giant deep claw thing. And I heard tell he was not quite as difficult as the rest of the raid. Like after the first boss, the rest were supposed to be easier. So... Um, I see one or two serious groups running the Abyss of Mordath nightly on Landy, uh, mostly on Tier 1, but, um, you know, of course the organized kins are doing Tier 2. And they're starting to be more successful as people get more geared with Lockbox, Ash, and Cordyceragos runs. So, biggest problem for me is always finding enough time to do a raid, which you know you're going to be in for several hours for. Typically that only happens for me maybe once a week if I'm lucky. I have about three tunes that I think uh, are geared enough for Tier 1 Abyss of Mordath and could succeed with good leadership and teammates. And I'm working on number four. And uh, the raid also rewards uh, include crafting pieces that make crafting relevant again, which I think is a great idea. And I'm enjoying that aspect of it. So that's my impressions of the Abyss of Mordath. If I get back in and get past second or third boss, I'll let you know. Learn some more mechanics in Tier 2, I'll let you know. <coughs> Happy rating. And on to Minrimon. And now for the original weekly sponsor segment. But this week, I will instead talk a little bit about Yulefest. Um, I haven't spoken to you since Yulefest concluded. Uh, I think there were, I don't know, three or four weeks of Yulefest by the time they brought it back for a little extra. But I'm only going to talk about 12 days of Yulefest. This year I decided to keep track of every present I received from Mary Sandowns. And each day I would log in, each tune, and believe it or not, over the course of Yulefest, I don't believe I missed a day. I might have missed a tune here or there if I lost track of who logged in or what, but for the most part, I logged in and did one quest every day for every tune and got a present. And I kept tabs on everything that I accumulated. And I could go through the whole list, but I'm just going to point out 12 of them in particular. On the first day of Yule Fest, Mary Sandowns gave to me a hobby horse that filled me with glee. On the second day of Yule Fest, Mary Sandowns gave to me two scraps of an essence reclamation scroll and a hobby horse that filled me with glee. 
On the third day of Yule, Fest Mary Sandowns gave to me three tombs of extraordinary experience, two scraps of an square skull, and a hobby horse that filled me with glee. On the fourth day of Yule, Fest Mary Sandowns gave to me four spiral horned snow beast cloaks, three tombs of extraordinary experience, two scraps of an reclamation skull, and a hobby horse that filled me with glee. On the fifth day of Yule, Fest Mary Sandowns gave to me Five gold spammers, four spiral horns, nobody's cloaks, three tombs of extraordinary experience, two scraps of an essence reclamation skull, and a hobby horse that filled me with glee. <clears throat> Skip a bit, brother. On the twelfth day of Yule, Fest Mary Sandowns gave to me 19,040 marks, 450 medallions, 438 Yule Fest tokens, 19 Shadow Estage Fragments, 15 Wintry Yule Caps, 13 Character Levels, 8 Stat Tomes, 2 Measly Seals, 5 Gold Spammers, 4 Spiral Horn Snobby's Cloaks, 3 Tombs of Extraordinary Experience, 2 Scraps of an Circumation Scroll, and a Hobby Horse that filled me with glee. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. After how many years of playing this game? I don't know. Let me guess. Yule Fest, I'm going to guess, has been in the game six or seven years now, at least. And uh, I had never won a hobby horse on any tune. But my RK level 56 now owns one. And I have to admit, every time I logged in, I had to run on my hobby horse through the town, slapping my ass. Because <laughs> that's, cause that's what you do when you get a hobby horse. <laughs> So on top of that, I figure I delivered uh, about 125 kegs and woke up maybe 375 snow beasts over the course of uh, being my two go-to quests for my daily runs. Those are the two fastest ones. You know, call out for the key items on the list. Uh, you know, the eight stat tomes are the ones I was really looking for, probably most of all. It's kind of fun to get some levels in there, too. The Shadowed Essence Fragments, a couple tunes got enough of them that I could trade them in for a Shattered Essence, which was useful. Uh, the rest have them sitting in their inventory waiting for next year, which is a pain. I don't know why they don't go in the wallet. And, of course, the Yulefest tokens, which um, I turned in a good number of those into Starlit Crystals. I want to say it was maybe 60 tokens or 80 tokens per Starlit Crystal. So I did trade in a number of those for Starlit Crystals for my tunes. And that was my experience with Yule Fest this year. Hope you enjoyed it. In the meantime, let's move on to the next beacon of Galenhad. We have reached the stage of the podcast where I go over 2017 predictions from last year and make some new predictions for 2018. This is a tradition in the January time frame. It's always very enjoyable. I'm always extremely accurate. Let's head right into it. Predictions for 2017 from last year. I said Minas Morgul will feature a new form of content. It will closely resemble an arcade game of Centipede with various Shelob spawned creepy crawlies coming down at you the steps of Kirith Ungol. Okay, so uh, given how loaded Lingris is with yuckies, this is pretty close, but given that Minas Morgul was not released in 2017, I'm going to give this one a grade of incomplete. Number two, the planes of Daggerlad Warbands will include Immortan Joe Sand Dune Hot Rod, surrounded by Warboys and Polecats from Mad Max. Okay, by the way, how cool would this be if there was actually out there running around the wastes? 
Um, I think he's actually out there somewhere just waiting to be found still. But until I find him, I guess I deserve an F on this one. Number three, new Lotro avatar revamps to include Kiss-style facial tattoos for Bjornings. Okay, the Bjorning avatar updates are not yet complete, but given the reactions to the ones released so far, uh, Gene Simmons would not approve. So I'll give this one a grade of incomplete. Number four, lifetime subs offered for the price of a junior estate in the Bay of Belfalas. Yes, and despite these exorbitant costs, SSG got me with this one in 2017. But no, lifetime options uh, are apparently not still in the offing anytime soon. Prediction number five, Standing Stone Games commemorates their new ownership by placing Stonehenge-like structure on Weathertop. The Weatherstock crowds and rowdy music caused the structure to collapse, killing hundreds in one catastrophic blow. Well, we got the Anniversary Yard Item Award for SSG instead. If you remember that one, the big stone with the stones rotating around it. Uh, so I'm going to give myself a B on this one. And you know what? I think the Weatherstock collapse might have actually happened. And the lag on Weathertop might have been so bad, you know, it might have been an SSG cover-up for this cataclysm. So, there you have it. Number six, a Shelob raid. Okay, I've predicted this like five times over the last 18 months, but now it's really going to happen. Guess what? It really didn't happen. Oh, how they tantalized us, but no, to no avail. I get a do-over for this one in 2018. Another incomplete grade. Number seven, Eagle Rides. Notice I did not say Mount. I said Eagle Rides. Yes, and A++, as this became part of the epic book closure, that one I nailed. At the end of 2017, Mordoreth will have the rangers trussed and tied in a semicircle and will threaten to bludgeon one of them to death in 2018 with a barbed wire-wrapped first age level 100 imbued two-handed club. Okay, first of all, this was a kick-ass prediction. And um, I believe we lost a few of the rangers in Mordor over the course of the time we spent there. Maybe some of the other Gurgil. I'm sure this probably happened somewhere, so I'll take a C- minus on that one. Uh, number nine, SSG fixes all lag issues everywhere for everybody at any time, and the player base complains the new streamlined experience is too smooth and seamless and just doesn't feel like Lotro anymore. Hmm, no comment on this one. Is there hope with the potential of a 64-bit client in 2018 for further improvement? Haven't heard about this one in a while. I hope they're still working on it. Prediction number 10, new store offering, offering Gift of the Valar Ultimate Edition will create your character, auto-level it to 105 with all Virtuos, class trait points, allies, armor, and essences, and place it on the edge of the Cracks of Doom so you only have to use the shove emote on Gollum in order to win the game. And I still think this could be the biggest Lotro store sale item of all time if they came out with it, uh, but right now they don't have it, so it's an F. So that, that was it for my 2017 predictions. I got a bunch of incompletes as SSG delayed several content areas that were expected in 2017 in favor of their own priorities. But I think overall, I deserve an A+. And uh, don't check Pine Leaf's math on this. Just take my word for it. All right, let's move into 2018 predictions right off the bat. Number 11, in keeping with my annual tradition, I am going to predict a Shelob raid in 2018. Woohoo! Number 10, Hobbit and Dwarf avatar updates will include Dwarven nipple rings and Hobbit pie in the face cosmetic options. Number 9, the musical edition of the fiddle into the game will inspire so many Charlie Daniels band ripoffs of The Devil Went Down to Georgia that all forms of the song will be banned from Weatherstock in perpetuity 
and other formal concert gatherings of any kind as well. Number eight, the continuation of the Black Book of Mortar storyline will reveal that the Black Book itself was an actual Black Book, i.e. a booty call diary of Sauron's where all his evil chicks are cataloged and rated based on previous dates with the Dark Lord. The Gurgiel will continue to vie for this highly sought-after relic with the prime digits for many evil bimbos in the game, including Sarah Okart, Lareth, Amarthiel, the Mistress of Pestilence, and Gun Ain. And you can read about why, if you have a night out with Gun Ain, you will be begging for mercy, <laughs> and why Lareth is really called is really called the Stained. Okay, maybe that Lareth statement went a little far, so I'll declare a proactive CRAP on that one. Uh, prediction number seven. Urudani, Urgukor, Lareth, Barangos, and Gothmog will all team up to form a new alt-rock supergroup called Dregs of the Dark Lord, and will tor they'll torn Nern with a Marilyn Manson undercard until spiraling egos cause the breakup of the band due to songwriting credit disputes. Dregs of the Dark Lord. Catch them on tour this summer. Uh, number six, the addition of Lake Town to the game will allow snorkeling adventures over the submerged corpse of Smog. Won't that be fun? Number five, the Tolkien description of Northern Mirkwood as being as dark as a patch of midnight that had never been cleared away will allow SSG to save a fortune on landscape development since none of the geography will actually be visible. Number four, Erebor, being one of the last remaining Grand Kingdoms of the Dwarves, will be epic! though not as epic as Moria. Number three, we will eventually find out where all the spiders went, and we won't frigging like it at all. Trust me on this. Number two, the Northern Mirkwood release will start to interest us, introduce us to the next major area in the game and eventually point us to journeying east to find the Blue Wizards and conquer the Easterlings of Run in 2019. And number one, we will find out why Barangos is really called the horror. Here's a hint. The first two letters of his name are a dead giveaway. B-O. And he will eventually reveal through the gateway of Nargroth that the origins and power of Orodruin, Mount Doom, are derived from the Balrog, or Balrogs, buried there in the Second Age, tethered there by Sauron in servitude to create a fire hot enough to craft the One Ring. So we got all that to look forward to, which is nice. Anyway, you look at it, SSG has a lot of story threads to clean up but going forward, which is why the insertion of Northern Mirkwood and Erebor next year, before they start doing that, came as such a surprise to me. Uh, tying it all together will take uh, all of Maid of Lions storytelling prowess, but I'm confident he has a plan and can probably pull it off. And with that, 2018 predictions in the book, I see on the horizon the beacon of Halafirian. We've run out of time to end early, but hopefully next time. It is time for Blessed Relief. I'm officially putting a little ocean gray colored bow on the 76th episode of LTB. I would love to hear your plots, feedbacks, riots, diatribes, and most of all your constructive critique, but give me diatribes, if nothing else. And uh, you can contact me at Bragg Son of Balan. That's Bragg with two A's. The second A stands for Angola. Facebook or Twitter at Bragg Son of Balan. My website at lightthebeacons.com, where you can post comments directly on the podcast. I kindly request you take the time screen iTunes review. If perchance you're so inclined, I would very much appreciate it. 
And if your comments there, too, incite me to forego my legendary Dwarven apathy, I'll include them in the next podcast or try to respond in some way. So I hope you laughed either at or with me. Hope you might have learned at least a little something you didn't know before, perhaps looked at the game with a slightly different perspective. And most of all, I hope you enjoy your week in Middle-earth. This is Bragg, son of Balin, signing off. Baruch Kazad. And remember, the next time life, or the RNG, gives you 15 wintry Yule caps from Yule Fest, don't despair. Just make wintry Yule cap lemonade and light the beacons. Shout out to the Last Alliance of Vilya. Talk to you guys soon. This is Grima. April is coming.